So that was that. If you're a guest with us, we're really happy that you're here. We're thrilled that you have chosen to join us on uh, a day like today. We want to welcome you. We want to get to know you. We want to invite you into the family if that is what you want. And so the way we do that is we have a connect card. It's a little brown card. looks a lot like that one on the screen. Right on that same information table, out those doors to your right. You throw your information on the card, put your card in the basket, take a coffee mug to say this place must care about me and they want me to feel warm on the inside too. Um, Take that with you. Uh, and then I'll reach out and we'll see how we can serve you and how we can love you along the faith journey. And so if that's something you would be willing to do, we would be very grateful. All right. Are we ready? We're going to continue on with our Relentless series. This is week three. It is flying by. And so uh, if you are digging it, it's flying by. And if you're not digging it, it's almost over. So either way, you're in good shape today. Uh, where we are in Jonah is uh, right. Jonah is this book, this book about running and rescue and the incredible depths of God's love. And so where we find ourselves is post-Jonah turning from God. So God has called Jonah to something. Jonah runs the other way. And at the end of chapter 1, God, quote, provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah's thrown overboard so the storm would be calmed. And um, then a fish comes and swallows up Jonah. And that's where we pick up the story. If you are following along with us on a daily basis, we have a devotional that goes along with us. It looks like this, um, it is on your Facebook every single morning at 6 a.m., should you want that. And uh, if you do not want to use it via Facebook, it is available on Amazon. You just put in Jonah Devotional in Amazon or my name. It'll be the top one there, and you can grab that if you like. If you'd rather have a PDF or you'd like me to come handwrite it on uh, your chalkboard or something, you'd let me know. We will make sure you have it. We want you to have it for free, if at all possible. So um, we're doing that every day. The point is, this isn't just a Sunday thing. We want a full 30 days for you to sit and kind of saturate yourself in the beauty of what God is doing. So, today, chapter 2, what happens in the whale? Jonah 2. Scripture says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life. You brought me up from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. All across the country today, churches have brought in special guest speakers They're doing incredible things. They brought in uh, Olympians and and, uh, incredible women of great faith and great uh, stature. Here, we're keeping it real. I just read vomited, okay? Congratulations. That's how special we're going to be. Jonah was vomited onto dry land by the whale. So, so this great fish, this whale, the sea monster, we went over that last week, so you can catch up on the podcast if you missed that. But, but basically what's happened is uh, Jonah, in the, the belly of this great fish, begins to pray this, this prayer. And as a result of whatever he's prayed, he's put back onto the land. His, his journey 
continues. Where, where I think we should start, the point right off the bat here, and there's a lot to talk about, is that Jonah, let's remember who he is. Jonah is a religious professional, okay? Which makes me a little uncomfortable as I read the story, because I see way too many parallels. Jonah's a prophet of God himself. He receives direct revelation and instruction from God. And yet, he is profoundly in the dark when it comes to God's grace. That's what lands him in the fish's belly to begin with, is he's profoundly in the dark about what it means to know God's goodness and his love and his mercy and his grace, and he somehow doesn't understand it to the level that he turns his back on God entirely. And as we go through the narrative, you can trace his fears, his prejudices against the Ninevites, his lack of endurance along the journey. All of these things are tied to his blindness of the reality of grace. And then in verse 8 and 9 of what we just read, Jonah seems to get it. As he's praying, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Which can be mercy or kindness or grace, kind of all bundled up. But I, he says, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He seems to get it. In this moment, he seems to have, have come to a place, the bottom of the barrel, we'd say, right? When somebody is struggling, you, know, you just got to hit the, got to hit, what is it called? That's the one. Rock bottom, note to self. He's hit that. And as a result of him hitting rock bottom, he turns around and he seems to, oh, you know what it is? My, my pursuit of vain idols has blocked from me the steadfast love of God. Jonah's pride sends him into the belly. When Jonah finally finds humility, when he finally finds proper perspective again, the first thing that happens is God commands the fish to release Jonah. If Jonah can be blind to this idea, God's prophet, who hears directly from God, God's mouthpiece to the world, if Jonah is blind to this, how much more susceptible to that blindness are we? And Tim Keller says, our most severe problems are caused by an ignorance of the true depths of the meaning of God's grace. Our most severe problems are caused by an ignorance of the true depths of the meaning of God's grace. We could just sit here in silence for 30 minutes and think about that and run that through the filter of our lives over and over, and that would be enough. See, grace is like a mansion, Around every corner, there are more rooms, there are more, there's more depth. And so, so when we receive the fullness of grace at the moment of salvation, we have it. Like we've entered into the mansion, we're in, we get it. We got the fullness available to us. And yet the rest of life is walking through this enormous castle of goodness and grace. And around every corner, there's another corridor full of room after room after room of fullness. And so do you get all of God's grace at the moment of salvation? Yes. Is the story of your life the ongoing discovery of what that fullness actually is? Yes. And so this is part of where we journey together. Part of the whole Christ life is not trying to earn back the grace. It's trying to uncover more of it to to see what it is that we've actually inherited through Jesus. And so my hope today is that we would uh, discover or rediscover some of that depth. So Jonah prays, right? Jonah prays this, this prayer, and I'll be honest, before I uh, started studying for this series, before I started doing the research as to what was happening here, I was always really impressed by Jonah. I thought Jonah, you know, really, that was a good turn by him. 
he's running from God, he's a wayward prophet, he's going the wrong way, and then he finds himself in a tough spot. And man, what a, what a guy. He just throws out this prayer that is like epic. He's got the phrasing right, and it's kind of poetic in a sense, and it's got this beautiful texture to it. And I thought, man, Jonah's something. And I start reading more about it, and, and what commentators will tell you is that this is a, a set prayer. It's a derivative of, of known prayers, which is if you start looking it up, Psalm 18 is represented, and Psalm 120 is represented, and there's a snippet of Psalm 34 and a snippet of Psalm 66. And what Jonah's done is not this off-the-cuff eloquence. Jonah has started recalling Scripture. He, he's recalling something he's learned and memorized, and it's just, he's just saying what he knows. He's, he's speaking the language of, of the Psalms. It's not his original eloquence, it's recalled beauty. And there's two things to grab in that. I'm actually glad that's what it is, and it's not his brilliance. One, the first thing we see, if that's true, and it is, you can go and we can block it out and you can show you where each phrase comes from. Jonah is praying the Psalms, which tells us that Jonah knows the word. Jonah knows the word and he prays the word. He knows the Psalms, the language of prayer itself. And he has that language available to him at a time of great trouble. When we started community groups, I made a point of saying, we're going to gather, share, and bless. And you have access to scripture. And so if you study in your group, that's great. And if you don't study in your group, guess what? You, you got access to that and you're probably doing that anyway. And so we're going to focus on, on getting out of ourselves and, and reaching a community and blessing a community. And, and rightfully, some of the response to that was, we're going to have groups and, and not, not study the Bible together. I thought, well... You know, the pendulum swings and, and every group will find their footing and everyone will figure out what their group needs. And yet, yeah, because we have access to that. Because we can do that on our own because that's something that as believers, we should all be, we should all be saturating in that. We should all be daily in that. And people say, okay, but, but why? Because you, you know it. So I'll just come to church on Sunday and you'll tell me and then we don't have to worry about it. And the reality is when we go through life, each of us a minister, when we go through life, part of the beauty of knowing the word of God is that the word of God ministers to us and then through us in times of great trouble. When we're sitting in a place in the depths of the belly of our own trials and we don't have the words to express, the word of God bubbles up. When we're sitting with a friend who's going through something that we've never been through and we don't know how to comfort them, the word of God bubbles up. The character of God is encased in it. The beauty of God comes forth in it. And so if we're going to learn anything from this part of Jonah using the Psalms as his prayer, it's that maybe that should be our goal in life is to know this so well that in our times of trial, in our times of trouble, in our moments in the belly, we would, we would have words to speak. Divine words, beautiful words, eternal words. That's why we spent five weeks in Psalm 23 last year. That's why we're spending five more weeks in another psalm this August. And, and maybe every August, we're going to just sit and take in this language of prayer. Because as it roots itself on our hearts, it changes not only our outlook on the world, but even the way we communicate with God himself. And so we spend time in the psalms so we might have language like Jonah so that's the first thing. The second thing is look at what he prays, right? It's a fascinating choice. Even if he's praying a set prayer, a derivative prayer, even if these aren't his original words, but he's quoting the Psalms, there's a lot of different Psalms he can choose from. 
And so Jonah does get praised for this because he doesn't pull uh, lament. He could have very easily said, woe is me. I'm cast down. I'm afflicted. There's plenty of that in Scripture. And what he chose to do rather was to be rooted in the praise psalms, to be rooted in the, the salvation psalms. To show that his faith was rooted in something unshakable. Even though he had uh, been shaken himself, he returns to this rock of God. In verse 4 to 6, it's, he, he talks about being banished and the darkness closing in and the deepest place of peril. And then he says, and yet. And yet you brought my life up from the pit. Jonah recognizes in the moment that he serves an and yet sort of God. An and yet sort of God. This is the heart of grace. To recognize an and yet posture. In our worst condition, God receives us. Each of our own stories is that in our worst condition, God receives us. Not because of what is in our hearts, but because what is in his heart. He doesn't wait for us to be good enough. He meets us long before we could ever achieve that. So serving an and yet sort of God yields an and yet sort of faith. I was banished, darkness was closing in, and yet you saved me. This and yet sort of faith then is a never give up sort of faith. It's a never get down sort of faith. It's a even when um, life hits, man, life is hard and there is a struggle even in the moment where we go, I am in the pit and I'm going to sit in the pit and I don't have to love it. We can root ourselves in the fact that we serve an and yet sort of God. That even though things may go this way, yet my God is bigger. My God will save. How do we get to that place? Sin is sort of like gravity. We've talked about Jonah being sort of this, this narrative on, on sin really at a, at a basic level. Sin is like this gravity that's always pulling downward. And so then grace, this and yet sort of grace, is is as if it cuts the tethers of gravity itself. And so you and I being constantly pulled downwards by sin, being constantly held down by sin, grace cuts the tethers of that. And then that gravity is released and you and I are free to soar and accomplish what it is that he's given us to accomplish in full freedom. We do things previously unimaginable once grace has cut the tethers of sin in our life. So no matter how deep our struggle or how great the downward pull of sin or circumstance, grace drives deeper. It's always true. No matter how deep we can go, no matter how far submerged we become, no matter how deep in sin, no matter how deep in secrecy, no matter how deep in depression, no matter how deep in circumstances, however deep we get, grace drives deeper. The picture of Jonah is the picture of us. Then in our deepest place of disobedience, in our greatest place of opposition to God, he's still there. So in the depths of Jonah's disobedience, he finds deep rescue. In the depths of our disobedience, we find deep rescue. Every single one of us had a choice in life. We chose sin. And as we chose sin, we were yet chose by God and given grace and extended faith. And the beauty of that is when we see Jonah, we see ourselves. 
Lord, I was there and, and you rescued me. Jonah finds out that you can't outrun God, that you can't outsend grace, that no one is beyond redemption, that no one is sunk to a depth that God can't reach. That's how we're saved. We finally all reach a point where we realize we can't earn salvation. That it has to be given to us because all of our efforts have led us just deeper into the pit. And so only seeing ourselves in the depths do we finally learn to accept grace because I can't claw myself out of this. This is that rock bottom and people always say when somebody's going through crisis, just wait. Just, they just pray that they hit rock bottom. What does rock bottom mean? That, that's the place of exhausted effort. You only hit that spot when you've exhausted every avenue you have to try to get yourself out of a problem. And only then do you finally say, I can't do it. And grace takes hold. But until then, it's our effort, it's our works, it's our ability And so how do we grow? If we become believers by finally realizing that it's God who does the work, then how do we grow the same way? The same humility to realize that we need regeneration through constant grace. Jonah says in verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols, they forfeit the steadfast love of God. What I recognize is, is that no one feels particularly sinful. It's a sort of a thing. No one feels particularly sinful. Most people leave a church service and they go, well, the preacher says I'm sinful. So I, I must, you know, I guess, you know, he's, he's right on, on some level. Yeah, that's me, I, I suppose. But no one leaves going, you know, I, man, I got a list here going. I'm going to pull out my list here. And these are all the things I'm currently working on. These are my sin struggles. And, and I, I've never met somebody that has that. Sin, but sin is never general. We, we keep it generally. Yes, I'm sort of sinful, and it's sort of this general thing, and I, I need grace to, to solve that. And yet sin is never general. Sin is like sickness. You can say, I'm just sick. But if you visit a physician, the physician will be able to find there's something actually acute happening within you. Well, I just have this cough. It's just the cough. I'm just sick. No, you have bronchitis. You know, nobody has time for that, but that's what you got. Two people got that. Just, sorry. I'll tweet that link out this week, and then you can all really look down on me. Um, you go, and you got a cough, and you, I'm just sick. It's just, it's, no, it's allergies. No, it's asthma. No, it's bronchitis. No, it's, there's, there's something down at the bottom of that that is actually the root cause. No one is just sick. Like, no one is just sinful. Somewhere in there, there are specific acute things that are creating illness in you, that are creating a spiritual illness. There's always a specific root. And so Jonah says, smashing idols is the way to fullness. Smashing idols is the way to the fullness of the steadfast love of God. It's it's as as if he's saying grace is this raging river, okay? Grace is, is this just raging river. And that idols are a dam built in the river that hold back the grace, that slow the grace to a trickle. And so where the raging river was the fullness of God's grace, idols seek to uh, delay it or detain it. To which we say, what idols, right? We can explain them away, right? Uh, Most of us don't, like, we enjoy some things. We don't worship them. We're going to go to lunch for Mother's Day. I enjoy good food. I don't worship food. And we're going to get home and we're going to get the uh, uh, television on and we're going to get the Spurs smoked by like 800 points to the Warriors. 
Oh, that's fine. I mean, we enjoy it, but we don't worship sports. It's fine. I'm not, I'm not generally gluttonous. I'm not, I'm not more materialistic than my neighbor. I'm okay. None of the, those aren't idols to me. They're occasionally stumble, stumbling blocks, but none of them are idols. I don't worship Satan, okay? You know? What are you going to say? All of us have this way of kind of explaining away the little things, the, the little blockages, the little things, the bricks, every brick that creates another layer in that dam. We all have a way to explain it away. Well, whether through comparison or simple denial, we, eh, not me. To where we get to a place like this and we go, well, what idols are left to slay? If I don't have any, then, well, then preacher, what do I do with this? You know, you're going to tell me this whole thing, it's, it's going to come back to idols and sin. And what if I don't have any like real big specific idols? Good news. If we say we don't have any, then odds are pride and self-righteousness are them. When we say we have nothing to improve on, when we say we have no need for grace, when we cannot look at our lives and find a spot where, you know what, this is, this is a problem for me. This is an area of, of concern for me. This is an issue I'm constantly working on. This is an issue I just need God's grace today because I am not strong enough to overcome that. If we don't have any of those areas of our life that we can look inward and say, this is one that I need grace in, then our idol is pride. Because we've somehow convinced ourselves that we made it, that we're perfect, and we don't need grace anymore. Pride, self-righteousness, it's like a, a weed that always grows back. It's spring, everything's blooming, it's beautiful, it's creating allergies in my house like no one would believe. We don't know what this is about, spring and pollen and butterflies and all that and sneezing and coughing for us. And yet everywhere you look where there's not supposed to be weeds, they're just popping up. And I said last week, I'm the Roundup King, I'm going and poisoning everything. And like a week later, three inches further down is the same weed, it just is like, yeah, whatever, I'm back. And this is pride for us, it just keeps coming back, there's, it's a constant everyday battle. Like we know we didn't earn salvation. We're, we're in this place. We kind of get that. I didn't earn this. But we start feeling, our pride gives us feeling like maybe, you know, maybe I'm earning some of the blessing after the fact. Like, like maybe I do deserve some of that grace I got because I've really got, I got this stuff down. And that's pride. I would say it this way. Every idol that we slay is another potential rock in the bag of self-righteousness that we carry. And so in the Christ life, the danger is we switch from being weighed down by idols and sin and carrying the heavy weight of all these things that we're trying to conquer. We risk being uh, switching course from that to walking the other direction, similarly weighed down by pride of all we've accomplished and found victory in. Because every time we slay an idol, that's a rock that goes into the bag of pride and self-righteousness. Easy way for me to illustrate this is I drive a 2009 Toyota Yaris. We've talked about this. It is red. It is a hatchback. There's some paint missing in spots. When they moved it up here from San Antonio, the guys didn't know how to drive standard, and they wanted to put it on top of one of those double-decker car mover things. And uh, I didn't see this because I was already here, but apparently they kind of dropped it. And so the hood, if you look real close, is, is sort of got, it's got this lean, you know, it's kind of a thing. You'll get there. But, but it's nothing to write home about. I've had uh, more than my share of jokes made about the car. I make them first so that I, I, if I beat you to the punch, it doesn't hurt as much, right? But when I bought it, 
in a sense, I had to kill uh, sort of my male pride. We always tell the story, and we won't tell the full one now, but we basically went into the dealership, and I told the guy, I want the cheapest car you have. And he looked at me funny, and he's like, yeah, I've had you before. And, and I left with the cheapest car on the lot, and I was offering to, like, take pieces off the car and hand them to him if he'd give me it for cheaper. And he, he made no money. He got, you know, the joke is he got his commission for the day was, like, a Big Mac or something. That's about all he got out of the five hours he spent with me. And instead of negotiating towards a cheaper price, I just wanted a cruddier car. So we leave with this car, and my male pride has kind of been sacrificed. I'm going, you know what? I'm going to drive this thing. Don't care. Don't care what people think. This is what I need to do. So I drive it, and people, oh, how many clowns you have in the back of that thing? And you're like, yeah, that's a good one. Thanks. Hey, is that like, is that a car? Or is it like just kind of an oversized roller skate? And you're like, yeah, that's a good one too. So I start adopting those, and you know, then I, I find this funny thing starts happening. As I've slayed the idol of male pride around my car, what I don't realize is that the stone of self-righteousness is dropped in my bag. This pride actually builds up, and instead of being slightly embarrassed that, you know, this is my car, I'm actually now on the flip side of that. I'm slightly prideful that that's my car. The temptation was that instead of being humble and satisfied with God's provision in my life, that I would judge those with more. And instead of, of seeing God's provision in their life, I would wonder why they weren't as humble as me. Everyone should drive. I mean, you can't have less than this. And because it's a Yaris, it made it really easy for me because it, I didn't just need to judge people who drove like a Tesla. I could judge you if you drove a seven-year-old Corolla because it was still nicer than my car. Oh, you got three hubcaps? It must be nice. I only got two. And that was a real thing for a time. I only had two. I put more on because I wanted to keep it, you know, looking choice. And I know this is a sin, though. Like, I know in the back of my mind that somewhere within me, this has crept into sin territory, that somewhere this, this, this car thing has become its own living thing, and I'm weighed down by it. I was finally kind of confirmed, this, this feeling in the back of me was fully confirmed when my car, I had to go into the shop, I had to get the brakes done or something. And for uh, the week, we were in San Antonio, and my, my dad says, well, don't rent a car, don't get rides. Um, you can borrow your sister's car. She doesn't need it. You just borrow it for a week. And I was like, okay, that sounds, that's good. My little sister borrowed her car. Well, she drove a Mercedes. I was profoundly uncomfortable driving this car for the week. Like you would think, kid in a candy store time, open up the sunroof, turn up the music, you know, stop real slow next to the ladies at the light. Look what I drive. I got the windows up. I got sunglasses on so no one will recognize me. I confession. I felt shame. This is how far the sin had turned in my life. I felt shame driving this car. I literally said, someone might see me. Like I'd worked so hard to build this reputation of less that I hadn't recognized that it had become its own sin. That pride had seeped in and all of the goodness that came from the desire to have something that was good stewardship and not too expensive and we can afford, all of that turned into its own idolatry. And then I was ashamed to have something nice. In ridding my life of materialistic pride, the weeds of self-righteousness grew up in their place. That's tough. 
Because as we grow in faith, as we grow along the faith journey, we make right choices or we do good things or we, we you know, for whatever we are, the, the danger is always that you do something right and you drop that stone of pride. And before too long, you're hunched over carrying just the same weight you used to. It's just the sin has changed from all these various sins that you had before you came to Christ. And now, man, you're free from those. You have victory from those. And you carry pride that's doubly dangerous. That was me. Now, if you want to lend me your Mercedes, you feel free. Okay? I'll take it for a week. We'll trade. I got no problem with that. It leads us to a sense that God owes us for our good behavior. Jonah says, smash the idol or forfeit grace for living. Steadfast love. When we see Old Testament, we see this concept, anything around grace in the Old Testament, it's, it's not salvific. It's not about salvation and eternity. Oftentimes the Old Testament, this idea of, of being saved, this idea of being delivered or set free, in the Old Testament, that's, that's about grace for living. It's about a way to have the fullness of God in your life in that moment. We've become so uh, earth and heaven kind of this dichotomy has been created that we don't ever read the Bible uh, quite right to say, you know what, so much of the Old Testament is about how do you live your best life today? And where do you find the fullness of God in your life today? Because that's what Jonah is saying. It's not about losing our salvation. It's about living saved in the pit of despair. A passage in Judges 10 says, when they smashed their idols, God could bear their misery no more. Over and over in the Old Testament, God is, is like, overjoyed when idols are smashed, when people turn their back on the things that they've been carrying. In a sense, the dam breaks in these moments. And grace is then released from being held back. And lives are overwhelmed by goodness again, by love again, by joy again. And so we have to recognize that and then figure out what does it look like to smash our own idols. I have a rather inelegant illustration. I tried to think of something prettier to honor the mothers in the room, but maybe this does it in a roundabout way. Maybe this is ironic. Idolatry and sin and particularly pride. Have you ever had a clogged drain in your bathroom? And you turn the tap on, you like brush your teeth, and you look down, and there's a pool that's kind of coming up. Minor thing, not a huge deal, not a big problem, but something's not right down there. Bathroom sink is backing up. The bathroom sink is not draining well. So what do we do, right? We, we recognize some water is getting through, but it's not right. It's not like it was designed to do. It was designed to just like drain, and it's not doing that. So if you're like me, you're lazy, and the first thing you do when your wife tells you that the sink is not draining well, you go to the store, and you spend like $14 on Drano, which never works. But you can say you did something, right? And so you pour the Drano down, and nothing happens, and then it still drains too slowly, and then you go into step two. And step two is to, to take the little uh, stopper out of the sink, right? And then to really get brave, and if you're uh, like well-appointed in your, your garage with your tools, you have a, some sort of stick or snake or something that you go and you get stuff out of. But if you're like me, uh, you go and you find a metal coat hanger that you may have used to roast marshmallows last week, and you pinch the end real nice, and you jam it down in the sink, and you just start fishing around and seeing what comes up. And what do you pull up? disgusting. It's never my hair. I don't have enough. <laughs> you pull up filth. 
hair, soap scum. You're like, how did a Q-tip even get down there? You're just pulling stuff out, you know? And your stomach kind of turns as you do it. You're, Gosh, this is really? But once you get it out and the whole thing is clean, you put the little topper back in and you set back and you turn the faucet on and it just drains. It's back as it was designed. Unclogged. Jonah says, my idols, my self-righteousness, have clogged the direct line to your mercy and grace, O God. We live so much of our lives in this sort of, it's sort of draining, so we're just going to leave it. Or I'll do this two-week thing, which is Drano, and I'll just, I know, I'll read my Bible for a week here, or I'll, I'll do an intensive there, or, or maybe we'll start praying at night here, and, and maybe that's the Drano, and we just sort of think, maybe that'll do it. And it makes us feel like we did something, but it doesn't unclog the drain. Jonah says, my idols, my pride, have clogged the direct line to God's mercy and his grace. That this torrent of beauty and goodness that is rushing into our lives, we build the wall to keep it out. And then wonder why we don't feel God in our presence. We wonder why we don't hear from God every day. We wonder why he seems so distant. And this raging river of grace lies on the other side of a wall that we've created. Jonah recognizes this. And he says, I will gain, I will again offer my life as a sacrifice. I will offer my life because salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, in parroting the psalm, says, I didn't earn the position I was given and I can't earn it now. And so all I have left is obedience. And in that stream, I will find the goodness and the grace and the beauty of the Lord. And with that, he is spit out to resume walking in his calling. And so the question is, where are we today? So many of us sit in our own darkness, in our own immobile, imprisoned life. Imprisoned by either idols that we've yet to address or by the pride of having addressed them, feeling pretty good about ourselves. We live a life that is not quite as designed, that is not quite draining like it's supposed to, that's not quite working in the way it should, and we can either let it continue to go that direction and experience a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less of God's grace every day for living. Or we have the opportunity like Jonah to do the difficult work of going before God and laying ourselves bare and saying, Lord, I can't earn this. I need help. I need grace. I need you to show me. So many of my prayers are, God, show me where I'm screwing up because I know I am, but I'm blinded to it. Show me where I'm out of step with you. Convict me in places that I thought I had it right. And once I find those places, once you show me those places, then Father, prevent me from taking on victory as pride. And when I do, God, forgive me, and let's start this whole thing over again. Do you have idols that you run to for satisfaction? Do you have idols that are weighing you down? Do you carry the heavy load of self-righteousness or pride? In wiping away idols, have you adopted a whole new idol of your own goodness? May we, as a community, may we vow like Jonah to smash the idols and to rest on nothing less than Jesus for our salvation and our daily portion of God's mercy and his grace and his steadfast love.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. You provide salvation. You provide uh, the rescue. You provide the redemption. Father, you allow us to walk in goodness and grace. God, you put up with us. Both while we find ourselves neck deep in sin. And you put up with us when we found victory and we ascribe that to ourselves in pride. Father, you are good. We pray today that we would find ourselves in uh, the torrent of that goodness, that we would find ourselves in uh, a wash in the rushing, raging river of your grace. Father, tear down the walls that we've built for ourselves. Tear down the dam of pride and self-righteousness, of sin and idolatry. Tear those things out of our lives. Open our eyes and convict us in places that we were even unaware of. God, not so that we can feel lesser and lower, not so that we can beat ourselves up and, and sit in our depravity, but Father, so that we might recognize that you and you alone are fullness, that we might recognize that it is in your goodness and your grace that we best become ambassadors for you, that we best uh, display your goodness, that we begin to glow and shine, that we become a city on the hill. So, Father, give us uh, that goodness and that grace today. Open our eyes, inspire us, challenge us, and then use us for whatever it is that you have called us to individually and then for what you've called us to as a community to reach this city with your unconditional, beautiful love and grace. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.